Got your Bible? Feel free to turn over to Philippians chapter 2. Um, last week, uh, we began this series um, on the, the floor of the idol factory. Um, last week, my, my dad did a great job of unpacking that the human heart is full of idols, that we are incurably religious. Everywhere we go, we are discovering an idol that we put to the center of our heart. At least the gravity, the propensity is that the human heart is longing for something to fill it. And we are constantly keeping our eyes and our hearts out for that which can satisfy. Um, My dad did a, a really great job of helping us see that when you think about the idea of idols that it's first and foremost, uh, it's not just moral or theological, it's relational. That when you look at James chapter 4, what he does is he says things like friendship with the world is enmity towards God. You adulterous generation. What is that? That's a relational problem, not just a moral one. So when we consider this this problem of idolatry, that which now affects all of us. The question is, like, Bendix, let's get a little bit deeper into how this is going to instruct, influence, and impact me. And um, again, when, when we think about idolatry, it's ultimately, it's taking a good gift given by a really good God and elevating it to the space of a creator. It's a good gift from a good God that now what we do is we we replace a creator with a created thing. Um, Long time ago, my my kids really wanted an Xbox. And and so we, as good parents, were like, you know what, let's give give, give this thing a shot. This is years ago, and we're like, for Christmas, we saved up, we got our kids an Xbox. And it was a good gift from good givers, right? And what we noticed is that over the course of just a couple of weeks, this really good gift became that which caused us as their parents to see our kids less and less and less and less and less. To the point that one, I remember I just, I went downstairs and I was standing there. No one acknowledged me. I'm like, guys, I I want to hang out with you. And their response was, not now, Dad. We're in the middle of a game. Which is ironic because now the gift became more valuable than the giver. This is idolatry. The propensity of idolatry, it, it, it lives, it exists, not in Nepal, but in us. And what we want to do over these next few weeks is we want, if you've ever been in an MRI machine, the silly tube, the tube of death, (laughs) like you, you get put into an MRI machine because there's something that's wrong, but you don't know what it is. You don't know where it is. And so what you do is you're still and you allow for the MRI machine to do its work to reveal the problem so that you can take next steps.
This series is supposed to take the MRI machine of God's word, his presence, his person, and for us to partner with that and enter into a space where we give God permission to do work. And that's hard, and it's messy, and it's uncomfortable, but this is what we're called to do. Let's allow for the giver to discover what things exist in our heart that he wants to wage war on and ultimately smash. And for tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about an easy one, pleasure, appetites, your passions. What I want to do is I'm going to title this Sized Up. Sized Up. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, if you would stand with me as we read the word. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For I have told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that, they are, that there are many whose conduct shows that they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They're headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things, and they think only about this life here on earth. Lord Jesus, will you be gracious to us and allow for the MRI machine of your Holy Spirit and your word to combine to do work in our hearts. We partner with you in allowing our hearts to be stilled, our ears to open. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I heard a story a while back about a woman who owned a python. I know, right? Pause for effect. Silence. You're like, okay, where's this going, Bendix? It's a seven-footer. This thing was enormous. And, uh, you know, I, I don't own a python, but I've heard they eat a lot, right? And so... Um, and so apparently this python got to a place where it stopped eating. And um, the owner was a woman. She was very concerned about her pet python that she had had it for a long time. And so she decided, you know what, I'm going to, I'm, I'm very concerned. She took it out of its cage and at night she would allow it to sleep next to her. Um, and uh, and she, she started to notice that, you know, that which was, it was supposed to be coiled up, it would begin to stretch out. And it was cuddling up next to her a lot. And so she, she took it to the doctor. And she, um, she said, Doc, I've got a problem with my python. Um, it's not eating. And, she, and the vet asked, well, ha- has it been stretching itself out? Yeah. It's been trying to cuddle up next to you. Yeah. She, he said, woman, you got a problem. That that... That python is not sick at all. It's sizing you up. Why? It's going to eat you. What we are told in this text that we just read, Paul, from a prison, is warning the church that he loves, that the idols of their appetites 
as unassuming as they may appear, are sizing them up to devour them. Sizing them up. In other words, any passion or longing or desire that ceases to be a servant will inevitably inevitably become a tyrant. This is what Paul is unveiling to us is there was a, a group of people who loved Jesus at some point. And this one sentence has been haunting me all week long. It's very simple. Verse 19. This is going to be the primary focus. Their God is their appetite. Comma. They brag about shameful things. Comma. And they think only about life here on earth. So I look at this and I go, how does a group of people who love Jesus go from loving Jesus to now their God literally being their appetite, causing them to now, according to the text, be enemies of the cross of Christ? How does this begin? How could it begin in me? How could it begin in you? The explanation is that the sizing up of this group of people began with the last phrase. Interestingly enough, they think only about this life here on earth. Their gaze changed. What they looked at, what they paid attention to, where they gave their focus, where ultimately they gave their hearts. You know, I I think that this group of people who had changed, beginning with their gaze, they were looking at a city in Philippi that was filled with opportunities to now be captivated by their desires. We live in the same space. We live in a world that is trying to hijack your gaze. Everywhere you turn, there's a thousand idols waiting for you to look at. Would you agree with that? I heard a guy, he recently said, secularism is doing a reverse exorcism on society. Wherever it sees God, it says, come out in humanity's name. And guess what what secularism does? When it says, God, come out, it replaces it with the self. Love what Mark Sayers, he says this. He says, no talk of mine is is, is complete without a quote. What are we, what we are experiencing is not the eradication of God from the Western mind, but rather the enthroning of the self as the greatest authority. God is increasingly relegated to the role of a servant and massager of the personal will. This is the world that we live in, and everywhere you turn, you are being invited to be swept away with your gaze as you look at the world as it is inviting you to make the self the most important thing. And then not only to make the self the most important thing, to do whatever your passions declare. I was in New York City and I'm gonna give a a couple of symbols, what I believe are symbols of our society. Ways in which The world is inviting you that things have turned to a point that now um, what I'm about to put up 
is, is normalized in the world that we live in. I was in New York City on uh, a, a train going to the Lower East Side, and I looked up and I saw this picture. It's a picture that was right there where everyone can see, and this is what it says. Knowing you're not dead inside. Tinder, a swipe away. This is the world that we live in. Begging you to come into a space where the only way you can feel alive is by dehumanizing someone else. This is society as we know it. There's another image. In 2014, a woman by the name of Tracy Amen did a, an art installation that she called My Bed. And this was on the heels of a, a four-day binge as a result of a breakup. And on, in this, you see vodka bottles, you see cigarette butts, you see a collection of things. It was a binge of epic proportions. It was a travesty. Looking at this breaks my heart and it sold for $2 million. My bed. A reflection of what all of society is saying of you Fulfill every desire that you want. There is no end. You dive in and you drink and you drink and you drink. And little do we know that what we see around us is sizing us up. We're encouraged to prioritize my desires above all things. Um, I recently saw this, uh, a new moral code. It's too... Great authors, Gabe Lyons and Dave Kinneman, this is what they have identified as now the new way that not just that you're supposed to live, but now you're supposed to encourage other people to live. It's like the, our culture's Ten Commandments. Commandment number one, to find yourself by looking within yourself. Commandment number two, to be fulfilled in life is to pursue the things you desire most. Commandment number three, enjoy yourself. Enjoying yourself is the highest goal of life. And commandment number four, any kind of sexual expression between two consenting adults is not only fine, but it's encouraged. These are the commandments. This is what we are, this is what's posted at the walls of our society everywhere we go. And the question is, when we consider the gaze, what does that gaze do within us? C.S. Lewis, he said this about the idea of one thing being the primary thing. He said, the most dangerous thing that you can do is to take any one impulse of your own nature and set it up as the thing you ought to follow at all costs. There is not one of them which will not make us into devils if we set it up as an absolute guide. The gaze of what they were looking at, it had become their God. That This text with this group of people, they had been looking and looking and looking and looking at the world. Everything was unencumbered. There was no resistance. They had nothing to fight with. 
They had nothing to fight back. And all of a sudden, their gaze had become their God. I wonder what your gaze is. What's your gaze? This is not a do more for God sermon. This is not a try harder sermon. This is just, let's just ask, let's slip into the MRI machine. Like for real. If you don't know what your gaze is, that just look at your phone. You can go to where you're spending your time. You can get a real clear understanding of where your gaze is. Because where your gaze is, there will be your God, according to the text. And if we're not careful, what we are gazing at is actually trying to size us up. You see, the, the God that they were looking at, gazing at, actually began to become their appetite. It says that their God is their appetite. And what's interesting about appetites is that it doesn't always start big and, and exhaustive and abrupt. It usually begins subtly. The good things become ruling things. Um, John Piper gives a, a very um, potent, this is a doozy, by the way, but this is a potent unpacking of how small, subtle things can be captivating things. This is what he says. The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the prime time dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it is a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. Satan's greatest goal is not for you to somehow disown your faith, but to edge you into apathy where your life just doesn't matter anymore. And it's only a matter of time before you now turn to the very thing you've been longing for the entire time. Any passion or longing or desire that ceases to be a servant will inevitably become a tyrant. Beware of the snake. It's sizing you up. You might be asking, well, Corey, what are some signs? What are some signs that this might be happening? I've got a few. I've got a few that come out of my own life. Everything that I'm going to say are things that I have actually navigated because the, the idol factory lives in me. G.K. Ch Chesterton, he saw an article in the London Times, and it, says, and it was the simple question, what is, what is wrong with the world? And he wrote a two-word response. I am. The idol factory is in us. It's in me. 
What are some signs that your hunger is starting to shift? Is there something that you're protecting? Loved one comes to you and says, I'm really concerned about this, or your time with that, or your focus on this. And your response is to defend, to push back, or to ignore. You're being sized up. This is something that you're investing increased time or resource into. You look back at the week and you've devoured 30 hours of Netflix or Instagram and TikTok. And then you, you think back and you, you bring the totality of your Bible reading and it's about 30 minutes. And about seven and a half minutes of prayer and you're like. Now, let, let me just, before I, you feel like I'm pouncing, my besetting sin if I'm honest, are a hundred million dollar like multi-season experiences that draw me out of the world that I'm in and brings me into a world of beauty and, and great acting and adventure, numbing me of my own world. I mean, I, I, there are times where I'm sitting at night, I'm on my iPad, my wife's on her computer, and I'm like, Man, what is... What's happening? Like, how easy is it for things to, to come in, to creep in slowly, subtly, and you're like, man, I'm being sized up. Or you look at the amount of money that you've spent. For example, you know, you go out this past month and you've, you've, you've gone out for, for a bunch of drinks with some friends, and you spent two, three hundred dollars this month on on having a good, a good time, but ultimately on some really good wine. And you look back and, and you're like, man, I tithed 300 bucks and I, I, I gave, I, I invested $300 on, on, on like really having an amazing time. There, the, the equating, like what's happened? Could you be being si sized up? Or that something that you're excusing where you, you're participating in something, but you instantly go, well, I was tired or lonely or sad or angry. Or, man, it's okay, my family of origin. You know, my, my dad did, did that. It's just a part. It's just what we do. Is this something that's producing shame in you? Is this something that's leading you into isolation that you're like, I'm going to figure it out, I'm going to figure it out, I'm going to figure it out. You're getting sized up. And Corey, this all sounds good, but I'm just telling you, this isn't going to happen to me. It's just not. I'm good. You don't understand. I feel like I'm in a good place. This is in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9. This is one of the scariest verses that I've read in quite some time. This is what it says. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Well, if you don't think that that really matters, Demas was called in Philemon, verse 24, a fellow worker. Longtime partner with Paul and Luke in building the church. And subtly, 
over the course of time, the longings, the passions, the desires of what he, they looked, he looked at and ultimately imbibed and received and the appetites began to change, that there was a transition that went from being sized up to actually being killed. The passions that you feed on will at one point feed on you. In 2020, in Harlem, there was a gentleman by the name of, now again, this is a gift to you. I'm not only doing a Python example, I'm also doing a tiger example. In 2020, there was a gentleman in Harlem who decided that he was going to purchase a tiger. He purchased it when it was small, super cute, adorbs, but he began to feed it. And he fed it. Now, remember, if you've ever been to Harlem, if you've ever been to New York City, those apartments, you know, are about 500 square feet. So this dude is feeding his tiger named Ming. And Ming decides he's going to get up to 425 pounds. And Ming comes to a place where he and his roommate, and Anton uh, Yates, uh, they're just, they have a disagreement. And Ming decides that he's going to pounce on Anton and he bites him in his neck and chews on his hand. And then he, so, so this picture here is a picture of, of what happened with this tiger after it had been shot by a gun. It was still attacking. My man, Mr. Yates took something that was so small and cuddly and fed it to a point that it lived to kill him. When you feed something long enough, consistently enough, it will kill you. It will kill you. This is what's happening with this man, Demas. He's fed and he's fed and he's fed and he's fed and he's fed. And he's been hiding all along, preaching, preaching the gospel, preaching and preaching and hiding and hiding and preaching and hiding. And then he can't hide anymore. And he leaves. Man, when you feed this, the desires that are within, it will always cause you to leave others in desolation. You will leave them alone. You'll leave what you love behind because you want your own thing and you want it now. So what's the alternative? How do we not only be sized up by idols, but begin to size up idols? Like what happens if, what if you actually could go on the offensive? Like what if you weren't a victim? What if, I mean, if we're talking about idol smashers, man, for some of us, we've had idols for 40 years. No, it's like seriously, like you've had them for 40 years. For many of us, the Christian life is just idol management. One week after another, after another, just trying to manage your idols. Get forgiven by your idols. Try to not do your idols and you do them and then you're forgiven and blah, blah. It just is a cycle. Like this is life for so many of us. And we have the audacity to say this is a series on idol smashers. Like, okay, then what can we give you to smash these things? 
Like for real, like, like what can we help you? This isn't about just 10 tips. It's not about some dude with a bunch of quotes. This is about what can we give you to actually look at your idols through a new lens? And this is what Paul says in the same chapter, just a few verses before. I mean, he's giving us the hope that we can root this, this stuff out. We can root it out. No. Sorry. Sorry, I... So this is what it says. This is Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted all as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Scubalon. The most, I mean, this is, this is the most intense word that he uses. It's, it's dung. It's what I said before. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, may share his sufferings, become like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. Listen to this, but I press on to make it my own. Oh, God, he wants it because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting, forgetting about the idols, forgetting about the past, forgetting it, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies, what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So here's what he's saying. And this is the takeaway we're gonna land in five minutes. What does it look like for you to know Christ? What does that mean? It starts off, that I may know him. That word know, gnosko, it is this, is this word not for knowledge. It's not collecting data. It's not having good theology. It's experiencing him. Smashing an idol of 40 years. You have to go beyond just knowing about God to knowing the king in a real way, in a vital way, in a way that now is transformative from the inside out. Good theology and good morals will take you so far, knowing Christ will take you the rest of the way. You see, you've got to bring who you really are to the king. Jesus can't change who you are pretending to be. You gotta be honest here, man. You gotta be honest. You gotta be transparent. You gotta be the you gotta you gotta acknowledge. You gotta acknowledge God, I am stepping into this space where I am acknowledging my idols and I and I love them. I love them. That we are love beings. We do what we love. If you've got idols, it's because you've loved them. You've protected them, you've honored them, you've you've hidden them. Now, what Paul is saying is, is that the idols 
versus Christ. And he's saying that because of the encounter that he's had, his eyes have been opened. And now there's been a reorienting of his loves to a new love. See, everything about the gospel is a reorienting of your loves. It's not about just reading your Bible. It's not just about doing good and trying harder and living pure. You can do all of that, but if you don't have a knowing relationship, an encounter with the king, not just one time, but on an ongoing basis that reorients your loves, your heart will constantly go back to the things that are sizing you up. See, what happens with Paul is that he has an encounter, a, an experience. He knows. He knows Jesus. And it now everything that he once had and loved, he counts as scubalon, as dung. It's rubbish. There is a changing. He's, at first he, in verse 70, he says, I count it all lost. That's, that's a counting language. What you once saw as prophet it's no longer profit. It's been changed over to a new category. Well, what does that? Know, knowing Christ, it is a reorienting of love. Like when my son, Nathaniel, when he came into the earth and he was born, we became a hostage of that dude. He took everything. He took it all. That little 10 pounds of poop, man, is a lot of, sorry, he, did, he was so beautiful and so awesome, but man, he, he demanded everything, everything. He took our time, he took our money, he took our sleep. <laughs> hey, Bendix says, can you go out? No, no, we can't. Why? <laughs> we got him. Our hearts were reorient, reoriented around love. We loved this dude so much that we were willing to change it all, not just to squeeze him into our life, but to now change our focus and our passion to direct it towards him. Man, that is what it looks like to have a reoriented love around the king. Man, your hold, your passions, your focus, your longings, your drives, your money, your time, it goes from trying to get God to do what you want to do. To, no, 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 no. I am reorienting. It's all, it's all scubalon. It's all, I, I don't care. I don't care. Like, but that is an, it's a, it's an ongoing uh, recalibration. It's a daily recalibration of knowing Christ. What I love about what Paul does here is that he reinforces the way that we no longer get sized up by idols, but begin doing the sizing, is we allow for the knowing of Jesus, knowing Christ, to reinforce a new identity. This is what he says, that I may be found in him. Found in him. I um, recently heard about a guy by the name of, not recently, in, 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 when I did, did my master's, I studied in, was amazed by Henry Nouwen. Um, he's written 39 books. If you haven't read any Nouwen, highly encourage you to. Um, he, he wrote this book called The Wounded Healer, The Return of the Prodigal Son. So, um, he, what made him so special and so unique and what many call a modern-day saint 
is that um, this is what he says about his life. So he wa- I want to be a great saint, but I also want to experience all the sensations that sin has experienced. I want to withdraw into the silence of prayer, but I don't want to miss anything happening in the world. I want to bury myself in anonymity among the poor, but I also want to write books, be known by others, see places, meet people, do interesting things. Do you see the tension? I mean, he, like the, the, the tension was real. And, and even his friends, this is amazing, his friends said about him that he was anxious, anguished, complexed. He struggled with same-sex attraction his entire life. Made a vow of celibacy. Never gave in to it. Hypersensitive. And he struggled to keep his vows to Jesus. And yet, every day, this man trusted his identity with the king. He, he, he allowed for Jesus to, to bring him close. That He gave him permission. He, he gave God permission to say, I want you to be my own. He, in the midst of all of the tensions of all of the idols of passions in his own, in his own heart, which there were many, and, and in the midst of all of the drives and the longings, this was a man who refused to, to, to create his own identity, but f- was found in the identity of Jesus. You see, you will either be self-defined by your chosen identity or self-defined and your identity is chosen by God. It's one or the other. What Paul is saying in this text is he's inviting you and I to come out the life of being sized up. You don't have to live like that anymore. There's hope. There's hope. And not just hope, but it's, it's time for, some, for some, some of us to be a little bit aggressive. That you're not going to passively drift into this. Can I just say that very clearly? You're either going to fight for this, which is why Paul says, I press on to make him my own. You're going to have to do some pressing. The pressing may include bringing someone into your life for you to, to practice the gift of confession. For some of us, it's time to take the 40-year-old idol, smash that thing. And some idols, specifically lust, pornography, some idols, when it comes to um, participating in relationships where you're going from sexual encounter to sexual encounter, some of these, we need a tag team. You've got to have somebody else to partner with you in the smashing of these idols. That's why Paul, in verse 17, he says, I want you to look to me. Look to me as your, as, as your example as you walk about life, I want to do this. I want to partner with you. You see, this has got the way that we smash idols. And for you to, as a parent, for you to teach your kids how to smash idols, you've got to lead the way. Yeah. You've got to do it. It's time. You, you know it's time. At the end of the day, this isn't about some guys talking about tigers and snakes. 
This is about the Spirit of God speaking to you about idols that have been sizing you up and you putting the gauntlet down and going, it's time. It's time. This is what Psalms 139 says. Verse 23, 24. This is my prayer for us. And I don't want us just to pray this. I want you to actually mean it. I want you to give permission to God for him to put you back into the MRI machine. For you to trust him with what he finds. For you to trust him on how he wants to operate with what he finds. For you to, you, you've been resisting your whole life. You've been resisting, resisting and hiding and excusing. Yet what if we prayed this and the spirit of God now gave you the courage to, to wage war on some things. Search me, O God, know my heart. Try me, test me, and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any grievous way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we invite you here. You're so tender. You're so good to us. And yet, Holy Spirit, you are a loving father. Your daddy who is coming to get some things out of us because you love us so much that you want to protect us from ourselves. Where, where there is some really specific things that, that you know God is bringing up. I just want you, in your own way, to acknowledge it. Say, God, I, I hear you and I don't want to resist you. Please forgive me for the way I've been resisting, hiding, pushing back, and partnering with all of the passions of this world to be formed and then ultimately to be sized up. Lord, I'm broken for my sin. I'm sorry for the way I've treated you. I know I, 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 I want to smash this. Will you empower me and put people in my life to wage war on this idol from this point forward. Lord Jesus, we want to know you. We want to know you. Not know about you, we want to know the King. Will you give us the gift of yourself that awakens us to your goodness and then fights for that knowing every day. We want to fight for it. We, we want to contend for it. We don't want to be passive about our faith, about our discipleship journey. We want to be an active participant in this process. Lord, we love you so much. In your name we pray. Amen.